Hey, what's good, 9 o'clock? How are we doing out there this morning? <clears throat> hey, it is very good to be with you once again. If you're here for the first time, special welcome. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We're excited to know you and that you get to spend this time with us this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak, and we're going to go into our time of teaching. But man, I got to say, I said this last night. It was true then, and it's true now. About five minutes ago, I was emotionally prepared to come and teach, and then I heard that song. Man, that was powerful. Can we just thank Lauren and Sarah and the band for that? Because that was not just really powerful, but honestly a great way to be able to, the Holy Spirit is already here meeting us, and it's a great way to be able to kick off our series. So as we go into this time of teaching, if you would, inside your program, you've got a green and white message note sheet, which is designed to be a tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. It's also designed to have some blank space for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to take away from His Word today. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, we have met you this morning. We have met you in the warmth and the smiles of the amazing men and women that greet us as we come in. Jesus, we have met you as we've come in and we've sung these songs about your love, these declarations of truth, that your love is overwhelming, that your love will never end, that there is no darkness or sin, that your love won't kick down to come after us. Jesus, as we heard this song sung over us that talked about your beauty, your strength, and truth, that will be true no matter what season we're in. We want to thank you for who you are. And as we move into our time where we open up your word, which is living and active, we are gathered as your saints, we are gathered as your family, we are gathered as your kingdom to know more of who you are, more of the strength and stability you bring into our lives, regardless of how quickly and how often our world changes. Jesus, we don't need to ask you to speak because you already are. As your people, our commitment this morning is that we are here to listen to what you have to say. As the communicator, as I often pray, Jesus, I pray that I would become much, much less, that I would not be the focus this morning, but that you, through your word, would become much, much more, that our view of you grow, that we truly see you as Savior, as King and Messiah through what you have to show us today. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We commit this time to you and we pray it in your mighty name. Everybody said, amen. Well, I'm really excited because this morning we are kicking off a brand new series called Seasons. Now, to understand the heart of this series, the first thing I need you to do is I need you to go back in time with me. And so I want you to think back. Go back to when you were a young elementary age student. So think between the ages of first grade and third grade. When you were young and in elementary school, at some point a well-meaning adult came up to you and asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? How did you answer that question? What did you answer to them when they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, without necessarily knowing you and knowing your specific answers, I generally have an idea. Do you realize that all of us said something delightfully fantastical, right? We didn't answer that we want to have a boring life. None of us answered that question going, you know what? I want to work at a dead-end job that I don't like. I want to have a very mediocre marriage, and I want to pay a ton in taxes to the government. None of us said that. We said things such as, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a hero. I want to be in law enforcement or a firefighter. I want to be the president. I want to be a doctor or a veterinarian. I've mentioned this before. I wanted to be a scientist at that point in my life because I wanted to create a working DeLorean time machine from the Back to the Future movies. Now, the reason why I'm having you think about that question is because even at a young age, when we started thinking about the future, we not only started thinking about what we want to be, but we also started thinking about the trajectory of our life, right? And even at a young age, we started developing what I affectionately call the plan, didn't we? 
this is my life plan. If I want to be a doctor or a lawyer, if I want to be this or that, then this is what needs to happen. And in fact, dwelling on the plan, creating the plan, altering the plan, isn't that something that we've been dwelling on our entire lives? And we still do. Whenever we think about the future, we go, okay, here are the steps, here are the plans. Now, a follow-up question. As you think of yourself as you stand in this moment, and you think about what your plan was back then or at another previous point in life, could you ever have imagined all of the unexpected, unplanned twists and turns that your life would have taken? Is it not true for all of us that if we look back on the story of our lives, that there are so many moments, seasons, experiences in which we would say that did not go according to plan? Now, there's two truths about that. One, we would honestly say that the unexpected has led us to some of the most beautiful and treasured experiences of our lives. At the same time, we would say that the unexpected has led us to some of the deepest seasons of hurt and pain that we've experienced in our lives. And so as I think about it, if I could go back to my young self, And if I could teach them one thing that I've learned to be true with all the different twists and turns my life has been taken, it would be this. Everything changes. That is the one guarantee and the one truth we all have. Everything changes. Now, we all know that to be true, right? And in fact, that truth is what I call the great equalizer. No matter your story, no matter your background, no matter your family of origin, that is true for all of us. That no matter what, despite our best efforts, our circumstances will always change. And as I know that to be true, i got to be honest with you, Rocky Peak, I don't like that truth. In my pride, I do not want to accept that truth. Because if I can't fully predict my future, then the truth is I can't control my life. I can't control the trajectory of my life. And we can relate on that, can't we? And in fact, the trap that I fall into, the trap that many of us fall into, is we become so focused, so obsessed with learning to control our circumstances that that becomes the big win of our lives, that we start measuring our success. We start measuring, are we winning at life by the measurement of, are my circumstances stable? If I can somehow stabilize my circumstances, if I can somehow live a life in which I can predict, I can control, if I can somehow live a life in which the boat is never rocked, then I will be winning, I will be successful, I will be living the dream. But again, through that, I, and I'm sure we, have experienced another harsh truth. Everything still changes. Despite my best efforts, despite seasons of good circumstances, despite how good my plan is, whether it's planned or unexpected changes, I can't stop the tidal wave of change coming. And we find ourselves in this vicious cycle, don't we? And that leads us into this three-week series that we're kicking off this morning called Seasons. And so the reason why it's called seasons is that many of us have heard that term used as a metaphor for life, haven't we? That we go through different seasons in our lives. And so as I define that metaphor for our term, the reason why we've called this series seasons is that no matter what season we're in, if we think about it in our own natural world, whether we're in fall, winter, spring, or summer, there is only one guarantee in each season— And that's that eventually the season will change. Eventually the season will change. It hasn't even been, what, a month since we changed our clocks, right? And we got daylight back. Fam, I got to be honest, I'm already sad that in eight months I have to change my clock back. (laughs) Come on, California elected (laughs) officials, let's get on this. 
so we don't have to move, so we don't have to do this again. I'm already mourning the change that's going to come with a season. But again, when we look at the Bible, you know what's interesting is that Scripture does not promise that our seasons will never change. Scripture does not promise that we are going to do well, we're going to be living a good Christian life if we end up living in circumstantial stability. In fact, Scripture promises the absolute opposite. Scripture is honest and blunt, and it tells you you are going to give, live a life that is defined by change, that is going to be dealing with seasons unexpectedly, suddenly changing on you, getting pulled out from under you. And so Scripture is trying to teach us, so how do we live? through that? How do we root ourselves as Christ followers into a sense of stability? Because have you noticed something? That that pursuit of stability, that effort that we put into it, we put a lot of emotional, spiritual, time, financial, physical resources behind finding stability. This isn't something we just like. This is deep in our souls. Our souls are craving a sense of stability because we were created for for it. We have been wired to live in and as an overflow of stability. The problem is we think that means our circumstances need to be stable. And we try to root our lives in what I call the ever-changing. But the reality is, if you look at the fact that our lives and our world is constantly changes, what it does is it shines a bright light to the fact that our world is ever-changing, but our Jesus never will. And so that deep desire of our souls to experience and live out of stability is because we were designed to root ourselves and live out of the never-changing character of God himself. And so that's what these next three weeks are going to be all about, is we're going to be learning how do we root ourselves in the only thing that never changes in this life and the next, and that's Jesus. Because I mentioned the one truth we all know is that everything changes. But the second truth that's even more important, but Jesus never will. And so our guide for the next three weeks are going to be the Psalms in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at three never-changing truths about who God is and how that leads us to a place of stability in our lives. This week, we're going to be looking at the truth of the fact that God's strength will never change. Next week, we're going to look at the truth that God's presence will never change. And the third week, we're going to look at the truth that God's voice will always be with us. And so as we dig in, the first thing I want to do is as we start a mini-series in the Psalms, I want to give you a little bit of context as to the Psalms themselves and their place in Scripture and how they've been used throughout the years. So there in your note sheet, if you're following along, you've got a section titled, The Psalms, A Brief Overview. And your fill-in is this. The Psalms are a call to worship. The Psalms are a call to worship. And so let's talk a little bit about the composition of the Psalms themselves. The Psalms in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, they are the longest book in the entire Bible. We have 150 Psalms collected there. Now, in the name itself, the name Psalms, in Hebrew, that word can be translated to mean praises. In Greek, the word that they use for psalms, psalmos, means a composition or a song of musical accompaniment. And so what the psalms are is they are a collection of poetry, they are a collection of art, they are a collection of music. And one thing that I love about that is that it shows not only does God love the creative arts, but it is a gift from him. The Psalms are a collection of art, and what we see throughout the Psalms are various different authors writing and worshiping as they experience various different seasons in their lives. Now, the Psalms themselves started as the songbook for the nation of Israel, God's people, as we follow their journey in the Old Testament. See, the Psalms were originally designed to be sung and declared together. 
The Psalms were designed to be a shared experience. As we read through the Psalms many times after the number of the Psalm, let's say Psalm 18 or Psalm 35, often we will find directions to the leader of worship. Often we might find directions that this is when the Psalm is sung, when we're celebrating a life, or when we're doing this in the temple. And so it started as a corporate experience. And then as Israel was conquered, as they were exiled, the people of God held on to these psalms as being individual prayers, as being reminders of who God is and what God's purposes are that he never changes. As we go to the New Testament, we see that the early church deeply valued the psalms, that not only did they still use them to sing together in worship, they still used them in their personal prayer lives, but in the New Testament of the Bible, no Old Testament book is quoted more than the Psalms. A rough count is that the Psalms are quoted over 100 times in the New Testament. And the Psalms are still as important today, not just for us corporately as the church, but for us individually. And what makes the Psalms so important for all of us still today is that they very cl clearly teaches two key things about worship. The Psalms teaches one, why we worship, and the Psalms teaches how to truly worship. And so there on your fill-in, the first fill-in is the answer as to why we worship. We worship because of God's true character. The Psalms reveal the true character of God. Over the last two, two and a half years, something that has become very common language here at Rocky Peak is the language of filtered and unfiltered. That often when it comes to how we view God, when it comes to how we view Jesus, when it comes to how we view church, when it comes to how we view how to live a Christian life, when it comes to how we view worship, we often see all of those items or aspects with filtered eyes, whether the filters have come from cultural expectation, come from our own experiences, our own experiences with religion, hurts, fears, expectations. But whatever it is, if we approach God with filtered eyes, we shrink him down and it distorts the truth. And so the Psalms are an amazing opportunity for the Word of God to shatter our filters because the Psalms show us what is true about God now and forevermore. The Psalms declare this was true about God in the past, this is still true of God today, this will be true of God in the future in all of eternity. And I think about it again in this corporate aspect. One thing that is so beautiful about the Psalms is that when we as a church or when you individually read the Psalms, when you sing the Psalms, when you spend time with the Psalms and you are experiencing and declaring the never-changing character of God, you are not doing that alone, but you are standing with the voices and the men and women that came long before us. You are standing with the voices and the men and women, the family on global, the global church. We are declaring the same truths of God with our brothers and sisters in English here in Spanish and Mexico and Latin America, in African nations, in Middle Eastern Asia, in Australia, we are standing with the global church. And we are saying no matter who we are, no matter what we are facing, this is true of God and it will never change. And the second thing, the Psalms teach us how to worship. And your fill-in is this, that we worship through authenticity. I have often said that say what you will about the Bible, but the Bible is an honest book. You can't deny that. And we see that so much that the Psalms are a very raw and honest look at real life. These are not men and women who are living the stereotypical perfect spiritual life. These are men and women who are just like us. And throughout the Psalms, they are experiencing the changing of seasons as they go through life. In the Psalms, we see authors that are writing out of good seasons, that are celebrating the blessings that come from knowing God, the blessings that have come from circumstances working out, and that's a good thing. 
in the Psalms, we see some of those same authors going through difficult seasons in which they cry out in anger, in hurt, in frustration. We see in the Psalms, some of these authors go, God, did you forget about me? God, why are you letting my enemies win? God, I feel betrayed by you. God, what is going on with my circumstances? In fact, out of 150 Psalms, roughly two-thirds of them are what we call laments. People crying out in pain and in hurt. David, as in David who slew Goliath David, as in David who became King David, wrote a majority of the Psalms. We attribute around 73 Psalms to David, and a majority of his were laments. And this expands our view of worship, that we're not supposed to come to God and worship with some fake Christian veneer, but our true worship comes out of authenticity, because in this book of worship, the majority of these songs are about how life has fallen apart and yet it's called worship. Because through the changing of their circumstances and their seasons, they can see and declare that everything else is changing, but God, you never will. And therefore, every season of our lives is a season of worship. I like how it's put there in your note sheet by uh, uh, Louis Giglio, pastor and author. He says, worship is going to be the soundtrack that leads us to victory. Worship is simply a shift of attention that allows us to see God better. Worship is like corrective lenses for our souls. I love that. Worship is like corrective lenses for our souls, bringing God clear into view. That's important for all of us, especially when life goes off the rails. And so now that we have a little bit of context, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into our psalm for the day. Each of these three weeks, we're going to look at a different psalm. And so today, we're starting with Psalm 29. And the reason why we're starting with the 29th Psalm, honestly, is because it's my personal favorite. <laughs> if you were with us about a year and a half ago as we went through Rooted, as I was teaching on suffering, I had the opportunity to briefly walk us through this Psalm. But now that we have a little bit more time, I want to come back to the Psalm. And because it's my personal favorite, throughout the many, many years, I have come back in, in different settings, taught through this Psalm often. And every time I do, the Lord continues to encourage me, continues to speak to me, and continues to expand my eyes and view in how I see Him. And so that's why we're going to jump into this tonight. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to the 29th Psalm in the Old Testament. And if you're following along your note sheet, we're going into the section titled, The One and Only King. And if you come to Waraki Peak regularly, you know what I'm going to tell you before we jump in. Have your pens handy. Have your highlight function ready because we're going to mark this psalm up. So Psalm 29, and in many of your Bibles, it attributes authorship right under that, a psalm of David. So starting at verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Right there, would you underline and highlight that very first word, ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Would you underline the word glory? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let me read that one more time. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so as we start the psalm there, let's unpack this because there's actually a lot in these first two verses. What David is doing is he is calling us to prepare ourselves to worship. And so the first word I had you underline, the word ascribe, is not a word that's commonly used by many of us. To ascribe simply means to acknowledge a quality that is true about someone. 
And so, in English, that sounds very simple. But we need to understand that in Hebrew, this word we're translating to a scribe is a much stronger call. This is a very deep, from the depths of his soul, that he's calling us not just, hey guys, we're going to get ready and worship right now. He is saying from the depths of everything he is, prepare yourself. We are here to worship the one true God. And what's interesting about that is David, as he prepares ourselves, is, excuse me, as he calls us to prepare ourselves, is preparing us by using kingly and royal language. He says, what does it mean to worship? It means to give God glory. To give someone or something glory is to deeply honor it. To give it glory means you bow your knee to it. You worship it. You acknowledge as king. And so as David uses this royal language, first of all, he's not simply calling us as people, but he calls all heavenly beings. He is calling all of creation, earth, people, the universe, angels. There's some scholars that think he's also using this word to call out false gods, not just these other pagan gods, but the false idols in our life. He's saying, come everybody, get together, because we're going to bow the knee to the one king that actually deserves it. And as he uses that kingly language, he says that our God is clothed in splendor. Now, what was known for kings at the time was your splendor usually meant an outward adornment. It meant some type of robe or hat or scepter or jewelry, something you put on that let everybody knew what your value and worth is. But David says that God's splendor does not come from an outward adornment, but it comes from his holiness. The character of the Lord, the splendor of the Lord is not something the Lord puts on. It's who he is. It is the the essence of his beings. And so David is preparing us before we enter into worship. The first thing David calls our attention to is we are about to worship a mighty, massive God. And in fact, there on your note sheet, the felon is this. This psalm leads us to experience God as king. This psalm leads us to experience God as king. And so before we go any further, again, we need to identify our starting point. And so I want to rhetorically ask you, how do you currently see God? Do you have a big view of God in your life right now, in the season you're experiencing? Is God truly king in your sight? Now, how you gauge that is not by do your words acknowledge him, but does your life, do your actions submit to his authority? Because whoever's authority we submit to is whoever is the king of our lives. Do you submit to God's authority? Now, the reality is, as again, as we use this filtered language, is that unintentionally or intentionally, many of us have a very filtered view of God in which we have shrunk him down and we don't see him as the king that he is. And so let me illustrate it this way. I have a friend of mine. His name is Rich Viotis, and he's a pastor over in uh, New York City. And he recently was talking about something similar, and he used a visual illustration that I really loved, and so joyfully I'm going to steal it and present it to you right now. Have you ever seen this before? Do you know what this is? Just shout it out. What is it? Actually, it's Mrs. Potato Head, just to be specific. But how many of you ever played with this or gave your kids uh, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head? I loved these growing up absolutely loved them. And if you think about it, what's the joy, what's the point of a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head? Well, you get it and you're in control of what it looks like, right? In fact, that's a smart business design because you buy it and then they sell you all of these accessories that you then need to buy. 
But again, I loved having a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head because I got to customize, I got to make it what I wanted. If I wanted it to be silly, I could put the pieces somewhere. If I wanted it to look like I like look normal, I could put the pieces here. But the reason why I bring this up is because when it comes to this toy, we are completely in control, right? The reality is for many of us, this is how we picture God. And what I mean by that is our true view of God is that God is small, is that God is manageable, and that we are in control of what God can and cannot do and when God is allowed to interfere in our lives. And so how this often plays out is, again, we pick and choose what we like. We may go, hey, you know what? I love, God, that you forgave me of my sin. I'm going to put that in. That is great. And then a couple weeks later, God, I don't like that you're actually calling me out on that sin. So you know what? Let's take that and put that on the back burner. Let's ignore that right there. God, I love that you talk about loving your enemies, that these people that are mad at me should forgive me. That is a great thing. But you know what, God? I don't like that you're calling me to love my enemies. I don't like that you're calling me to do that. So maybe let's put that over here. Maybe it's the enemies I, I feel like liking at this point. Hey, God, I need you to do this in my life, and I'm only going to follow you if you do. So if you would, I'm going to take this piece, and I'm going to move it off here. Hey, here's a little purse. God, I want to be rich. Can you... Can you make sure that happens? Because that's going to that's gonna solve all of my problems. And so we start creating a God of our own creation. And the reality is when we start creating a God of our own choosing, it will always, always, always disappoint. Because then when the seasons change, our God falls apart. The pieces fall off. And so again, what happens is we look at this God that we made this God that's falling apart, and we say, you can't help me in this, and we abandon it. And so as we go into this psalm, David is calling us to let the Holy Spirit shatter our filters. David is calling us to worship God for who he truly is, which is the almighty king. And as he goes through the psalm, what he's going to do is he's going to lead us into an unfiltered view of God in which all of creation and in every season, they bow the knee to worship the king. And as he does that, David poetically is going to use the picture of God as being a storm. It's going to begin over the Mediterranean. It's going to move into the north of Israel and move south. And as he does that, he's going to show us the power and the authority that only God as king brings. And so let's go ahead and continue reading, starting at verse 3. The voice of the Lord, underline and highlight the word voice. In fact, that word is going to pop up many times throughout the psalm. And so I want to tell you already, every time you see it, highlight it of some kind. The voice of the Lord is over the water. The God of glory thunders. Would you underline or highlight that? The God of glory thunders, meaning brings it under his control. The God of glory thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And so even before we get into these stages of nature, the first thing that we're learning is that God brings all of creation under his kingly authority simply by using his voice. That's it. In fact, we see in the entirety of Scripture that when God created the heavens and the earth, when he created the entirety of the cosmos, he spoke it into existence. That when God created man and woman, he spoke life into them. We see that when Jesus in the New Testament arrives to see his friend Lazarus who was dead, Jesus does not go in there and use his hands to revive him. Jesus stands at the entry and with his voice calls him back into life. As I was preparing this, I like how one scholar put it, if that's what God can do with his voice, imagine what he could do with his hands. The voice of the Lord is the authority of the king. And then it talks about, as it's going through the land, it first talks about this first point of nature that the king brings under submission, and that's water. And understand the picture here. It's not talking about a really gentle babbling brook. It's talking about the destructivity 
and the sheer power of water. Water can be dangerous, can't it? In fact, water at times can be outright terrifying when you see things such as massive storms. If you've been following Michael and the Israel team, they're in the middle of Israel and it hailed on them. Water from the sky is trying to kill our pastor as we went into it. When you see or experience tsunamis, our hearts have been broken that in the last month or two, the Midwest has experienced flooding like they haven't in a long, long time. For the nation of Israel, they knew this all too well, that they still celebrated and remembered Noah's global flood, which devastated the world. At the time, pagan religions around them, the way they explained the destructivity that came from the water from the skies was that when the water was a destructive force, it was because the gods were battling each other, and that was their arena. And so what does this water represent in our life? Well, what I would say is the destructivity of the water represents a sudden change in our season. When we're going from a season of good, a season of peace, to when all of a sudden we're hit by that tidal wave and everything falls apart. And this can be because of consequences of our sin, because of nothing to do with us, but maybe dealing with the sin of another person. This can be because you got the news from the doctor or because you got this update at work you weren't expecting, or because your kids haven't responded in the way you wanted to. This can be because of things going on in your own head, things going on in your neighborhood, in your family. Emotionally, this is what can lead us to panic, to frustration, to confusion, to not knowing what's going on. I would say that the water represents the sudden change of a season and not for the better. But what does David remind us? That in this sudden change, in this destructivity, what does the voice of the Lord do? It thunders. He brings the water under his submission and authority. So when the seasons suddenly change, the Lord is not shaken. And his voice brings those seasons under his authority. In Matthew chapter 8 in the New Testament, Jesus and his followers are involved in a storm that terrified hardened fishermen. And Jesus simply, with his words, rebukes the storm and brings it under his control. That is our king. And so David continues. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks. Would you underline the word breaks? The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap, would you underline the word leap, like a calf, Syrian like a wild ox. And so as the storm of God's power moves on, now we're dealing with forests, now we're dealing with mountains. The cedars of Lebanon, the specific trees that David is referencing, were famed in the Middle East and in the ancient world because they were big, strong symbols of strength. I often think of the California redwoods. Now hear me, they looked nothing like the California redwoods, but the redwoods can be a metaphor of power and strength in a tree, right? Royal families often and wanted to build with the cedars of Lebanon because it symbolized strength. In fact, one of the things it symbolized was unbreakable power. And what does the voice of the Lord do to the unbreakable? He shatters it. And then he moves on to the mountain range. And if I were to say, what does a mountain range symbolize? It symbolizes the immovable, right? There's no moving a mountain. That ain't going to happen. And so as the voice of the Lord comes into the mountain, Sirion is the highest peak of the mountain. It says that the voice of the Lord makes it skip like a child. The unbreakable and the unmovable shatter and leap when faced with the voice of the Lord, our King. And so what can, these th what can both these areas represent in our lives? Well, they would represent those seasons in which we feel that we face the impossible. The seasons in when we feel it is going to be impossible to find provision, whether it's financial or material provision, whether it's emotional or relational provision. These are those seasons in which we think it's impossible to gain healing, whether it's physical healing, 
or mental healing or relational healing. These are those seasons in which we think it's impossible for the Lord to change the heart of people that are hurting us, the heart of our enemies, our own heart towards God and other people. These are the seasons in which emotionally we would say it's impossible for us to trust God because all we see is the storm and we're scared. These would be the seasons in which we would say it's impossible to experience joy in the midst of the suffering. These would be those seasons in which we would say the most impossible thing that can be asked of me is to wait on God's timing. When you're going through a good season, hearing somebody say, wait on the Lord's timing, the timing of the Lord is perfect, is well and good. When you're going through one of those seasons, if someone says that to you, you want to punch them in the face because it seems impossible. And so what do we learn about the king's strength in those seasons? Is that the voice of the Lord shatters and shakes the impossible in our lives. That the authority of the Lord oversupersedes the authority of any perceived impossibility that we, to that we, uh, that we may face. There is no impossible when it comes to King Jesus. And then he continues, verse 7, the voice of the Lord strikes, would you know the word strikes? The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. Now again, what we're seeing is God's reign over all of creation, that it started in the heavenly realms. He reigns over the waters. He reigns over the forest. He reigns over the mountains. Now he reigns over the sky itself. And when he talks about lightning, and I've mentioned this once before, as somebody who grew up and has been raised in Southern California, I really have no concept for what thunder and lightning really is. Have you ever experienced a thunder and lightning storm outside of California? Has anybody ever experienced that? That is why the rest of the country laughs at us. Because it drizzles a little bit, it flashes once in the sky, and we lose our minds. <laughs> but the rest of the country knows that what they call thunderstorms is often akin to being in a war zone, isn't it? And that's the image that David is using. He's talking about lightning striking as if you're in an active war zone. He's talking about lightning and thunder that seemingly is going to make the sky shatter itself. Up, down, left, right, wherever we look, God reigns. And then he continues. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert, which underline the word shakes. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. And so for the nation of Israel, that specific desert, the desert Kadesh, held some significance because it's an area in which the Israelites, after they had left Egypt, after they had been wandering for 40 years, they took refuge there in the southern part of, uh, in the southern part of Israel. But also for the nation of Israel, the word desert itself often signified a lonely or a hidden place. And so the reason why this is so key is that this is representing those places that are very hidden in our lives. And so what this often represents is that regardless of the season in your in, this represents the things you are hiding inside yourself the things you are hiding in your soul, the things you don't want anyone else to ever find out. And so often, this is our areas of sin and stronghold. This is our areas of habitual disobedience in which the enemy has got a foothold in our lives. Often, these hidden areas that we try to hide from the rest of the world are our areas of addiction, are our areas of sexual impurity, pornography, affairs, lust, are our areas of anger and bitterness and dwelling and frustration and contempt. Often these are the areas of dishonesty 
where we're not honest or authentic with our words or our action, where we're stealing and hurting other people. These are our areas of idolatry. Those things that we claim we have under control. No, 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 no. My job is not a false God. My perception, people thinking that I'm a perfect parent or a perfect spouse or a perfect individual, that's not a, that's not a God that I bow my knee to. I can stop at any time. Or emotionally, these are the areas that we hide just how hurt we are because of various things in life. These are the areas that we hide from our loved ones, from our life group, the shame we felt because of either what we've done or what had been done to us. These are the areas where we try to hide our very real anxiety and depression. These are the areas in which we hide our scars. These are the areas in which we hide and hope that nobody finds out that when it comes to life, I truly have no idea what I'm doing. And so what do we learn about the king's strength through the desert? Is that even in our desert, even in our most hidden and darkest and even most disgusting of places. The king is there and he reigns. And even in the most hidden of places, the king enters the desert because he brings with him the power of Jesus. And through the power of Jesus in even the most darkest aspects of our souls, Jesus can bring light, he can bring healing, he can bring forgiveness, he can bring restoration, he can bring a new season and a new beginning. And as we continue, verse 9, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. There's that word again. Would you underline this? And so as the Lord moves, do you notice what's amazing about the psalm? Is the psalm is repeatedly talking about the voice of the Lord, but God himself never actually speaks in the psalm. The only people that speak are us. And when we see an unfiltered view of our king, when we see God as he truly is, as the Lord in authority over every season in our life, the only natural response is one of worship in which we cry out glory. And so then, verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned. Would you underline that? The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. There is only one king. And that was true yesterday. That's true today. That's true tomorrow. That's true as long as we're on this side of heaven. That's true for all of eternity on the next side of heaven. Once again, they bring up the flood. And yes, Noah's flood represented destruction, but it also represented a new beginning a new start. And so that is what the power of the king does, is that it comes into creation and it represents a brand new beginning under the authority of King Jesus. And what's beautiful about this is that as we see him move, one, we see that the king is not bound by a specific season or part of nature. He is seen in all of it. But as he moves through nature in the psalm, where does he go to dwell? His temple. Christ follower, you are his temple. Christ follower, when you gave your life to Jesus, you became the place where this king came to dwell. He is the authority over all of creation, and he lives with you to be the authority over every season in your life. And with that authority, he leads us to the final verse, verse 11. And I'm not even going to say, underline a specific word, put a giant box around the entire verse, because it is key in light of the context we've just read verse 11 the lord the king gives strength to his people the lord the king blesses his people with peace those two words strength or peace and peace take on a much deeper meaning in light of the entire psalm don't they once again the lord gives strength to his people the Lord blesses his people with peace. The king gives us two things that only the true king can. And these two things, strength and peace, are not simply things that God does, 
but they are core aspects of his very identity. And so when David declares that the Lord gives his people strength and peace, what he's actually saying is the Lord gives us his very self. He lives in us. He dwells in us and he is with us for every season as a reminder that your circumstances will change, your seasons will change. You will experience the whole gambit of emotions, but what will never change is the kingship of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, and because you are the temple, the presence of Jesus is true yesterday, today, tomorrow, forevermore, forever ever. Amen. And as we leave Psalm 29, I just want together to say, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your spirit showed us through this psalm. Thank you for the encouragement and the truth and the unfiltered view it gives us of your kingship. Thank you for your word. Amen. And so that's our passage. And so in the time that we have left, what I want to do is that this passage is intended to do more than just inform us, more than give us knowledge of who God is. But this psalm is intended to lead us to experience the kingship of Jesus, the stability we find in his strength. And so there in your note sheet, I want to unpack real quick just two key ways we experience his kingship. So you got a section titled Experiencing Our King. And the first fill-in is this. This psalm leads us to experience King Jesus through experiencing the King's strength. And this psalm makes a very clear distinction of how God's strength is different than our strength, and that's in the word limitless. The strength of our King has no limits. Let me ask you, Rocky Peak, have you experienced that your strength has limits? Have you experienced that there are times and seasons in which you feel that emotionally, spiritually, emotionally, excuse me, physically, you can't go any further? That you just want to say, I can't do this anymore? And so what the psalm reminds us is that in those seasons, hear me very clearly, the king has not abandoned you. He has heard your cries and he has entered into your life and into that season to be with you. In those times that God is seemingly silent, remember that he is always present and that his kingship, his authority is stronger than us. Thank God. His authority is stronger than sin, it's stronger than death, and it's stronger than anything, the devil, the darkness, that this world could ever throw at us. This psalm leads us to experience the strength of our king. I like how it's put there in your note sheet. As the thunderstorm is employed by the psalm, the storm is pictured as the embodiment and arrival of pure power a voice that is nothing other than strength and majesty, a voice that shatters trees, causes the very earth to shake, strip the forest bare, and terrifies animals. That is the strength of the king that is with you day in and day out. And the second thing that the psalm leads us to experience, the second fill-in, is that through ex we experience his strength through experiencing the king's presence. And again, if we just follow the spatial trajectory of the psalm, it starts in the heavens, it moves throughout the world, but then the presence of the Lord comes and dwells inside his temple. This was true then and is true now that often earthly kings, often earthly people that are in position of powers become very detached, become very uninterested, become very uncaring of the people under their care. And so what we see is that our king is not detached. Our king is caring. Our king is loving and is for us, so much so that he entered into the mess of our lives and is with us regardless of the season. And what he sees through his presence is that his strength brings a peace that surpasses all understanding. But hear this clearly, that peace does not come from our circumstances being fixed. That peace does not come from our circumstances being solved, but that peace comes from knowing that the king is present and facing it with you. I said this 
several years ago, and it, it, it continues to speak to my heart, that there are times in our life when I may not know what is going on, I may not know when this is going to end, I may not know how we're going to get out of this or how this even started, but it's in those times when I don't know anything else that I know the who that is King Jesus that is with me always. And that is true in all seasons. I love again how it's there in your note sheet. An attribute of the Lord, which only the Lord possesses, namely strength, is imparted to his people. The significance of God coming is that God comes both to be known and to impart something to the people that only God can impart. He is present with us to give us what only he can give, his presence, his identity. And so I mentioned that these are two key areas that the psalm wants us to experience. And so how do we experience it? Well, practically, I'm going to get very practical and tell you how we experience it. We experience it through the Word of God. We experience it through the psalm. Christian, I'm going to use very blunt language because this is something the Lord is teaching me and reminding me. We will never fully experience King Jesus without learning how to experience his word one-on-one. As long as the word is not a part of our lives, that image of Jesus will always be small and manageable. And so what I mean by this is how do we experience his strength and his presence? Well, I'm going to ask you that we have seven days in the next week. I'm going to do this, I'm going to ask you to do this with me, that five out of those seven, that we would spend time in the 29th Psalm. That you would read it, that you would reread it, that maybe you would write it or type it out, that maybe you would draw or create art based on it, that you would do it alone and individually, that you would do it with friends or family, that you would text and email, FaceTime each other about the song. And not just are you reading it, but immerse yourself into it. What is this saying about your season in life? What is the Lord saying about who he is? What is the Lord teaching you about how you see him and how you should see him? Circle things that jump out at you. Write little revelations that go in. You are not a sinner for writing in your Bible. You are doing good. But if we truly want to experience the strength of the king, the presence of the king, it's going to come from, from the psalm that leads us to do that. So let's do that together as we go into this week. And so as we wrap things up, Rocky Peak, I just have one final set of questions there on the back of your note sheet. And these aren't questions for you to necessarily answer now. These are questions for you to answer as you spend some time with the Lord this week. But the first question is this, what season are you currently in? Are you in a season of growth? Are you in a season of joy? Are you in a season of pruning? Are you in a season of conviction? Are you in a season of shame? Are you in a season of power? Are you in a season of excitement? But what season are you in? And the second question to dwell on in your time this week, the second fill-in, what is God's voice speaking into your season right now? As we saw, the voice of the Lord has authority over every season of our lives. What is God's voice speaking into your season? And so as I invite the worship team to come on out, as we go into this final time of singing, as we receive our gifts and offerings, you know, one of the things that I love about studying the Psalms is when you study it, you can study it from an academic point of view, but you also get to see how this has inspired a lot of people to respond to the Psalms in art and in beauty. And there is a great book that are great volumes that, that are very old that walk that balance really well. It's called The Treasury of David, A Look Into the Psalms. And as I was reading it, the author put it simply put, it was in the middle of these two big paragraphs, and the phrase is simply this. This psalm is a reminder that Satan is not king, but God is. And so as we leave this psalm, as we go into this time of worship, let this be a time in which we declare that Satan, sin, darkness, death has no dominion and authority over us. King Jesus does. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. 
And as king, we joyfully, not begrudgingly, not frustratingly, not because we are being forced, we joyfully come under your authority because as our king, you want what is best for your children. Jesus, we want to celebrate you as king. We want to see you as the true king in our lives, in our world. And so I pray that we take this psalm, what it reveals to heart. I pray that as we leave this place after this time of worship and we go, that we be committed to spend time in your word, to spend time under the authority of your voice, to again be reminded that you are king in all areas, you are king in all seasons, that you speak into every season and area in our life. And as you're people, we want to declare that, and we want to listen to what our King has to say. And thank you for the beauty of your voice and what it speaks into our lives each and every day in each and every season. And so this final song, let it not be simply words we say, but let it be the cry of our heart. Let it be, as Louis Giglio said, the song of victory, because Jesus reigns forever and ever. And we all said, amen.